bit about when I grew up. I grew up in a, what would be described as a dysfunctional family. My dad wasn't about and the family that I did see didn't get on so much. Uh, yeah, so when I realised that I was adopted into God's family, I was really excited. As soon as I become a Christian, I looked at the church and I thought, at last, this perfect family that I've always dreamed of. <laughs> and it wasn't long till I realised that the church is a dysfunctional family as any other family that you might find. But I found it hard. I was shocked when I first saw conflict within the church. It was something that I didn't expect and I wasn't prepared for. For some time, I used to think that because of the conflict in various churches that I'd been a part of, that I had better friendships and closer ties with people from the world than I did with in the church. But the passage we're looking at today explains to us and shows us that we shouldn't be shocked that we will often find conflict in the church. And it also gives us some helpful tips for how we should approach it. So if you turn with me to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, we'll see what God has to say about conflict within the church and how we as believers should deal with it. As we're looking, I will just uh, pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and that it has power to change the hardest of hearts. And Lord, I just pray as we look at your word tonight, we'll be excited about the name of Jesus. We'll be reminded of our salvation and the cost of what it was to purchase that for us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we read your word, Lord, not only will we be excited to know what you have done for us, Lord, but how we can apply your word to our lives. We pray, Lord, that you will encourage us, that you will challenge us, and that you will equip us to be more like your son, Jesus. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. So if you look at the first few verses, it says, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Harmonius and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. 
and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth, and that they will come to their senses and will escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Amen. So as we look at this, we can see that it is being written to Timothy, who is a pastor of the church in Ephesus. This was written when uh, Paul was under house arrest. Sorry, the, the first letter that, that Paul had written to Timothy was when he was under house arrest. Now Paul has gone from bad to worse. He's, he's now in a dungeon and he's again writing to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church that Paul initially planted in Ephesus. The first letter showed Paul's concern about internal strife. He was concerned about false teaching and hedonism, which is still a problem in the, in the second letter. And this second letter shows concern not only about the internal strife, but external strife. The church is facing persecution, particularly from Rome and particularly from the emperor Nero. This letter not only highlights Paul's personal love for Timothy and for the church that he planted, it's also rich in theology and gospel-centred. John Stott says, Paul's preoccupation in writing to Timothy was with the gospel, the deposit of truth which had been revealed and committed to him by God. God uh, Paul's priority is the gospel. And Stott outlines to Timothy in four parts that as a leader of a church, he should guard the gospel, that he should be willing to suffer for the gospel, that he should continue in the gospel and that he should proclaim the gospel. We see in, in the previous chapter that, and the beginning of this chapter, that Paul is keen to show Timothy that as a minister, he will encounter tough times, that he will encounter times of persecution, that he will encounter false teaching, but he needs to remain firm in the gospel that those he works alongside and those he trains and promotes to eldership must be good and equipped to teach that they must be faithful to the word of God. He highlights the gospel and reminds Timothy exactly what the gospel means. And then he comes to this verse and says that he must keep reminding God's people of these things, that he must warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value when it only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. So what Paul is doing is, Paul is, is instructing Timothy from, from a dungeon so that he can remind the church of what the true gospel is that he can remind Timothy of what it means to live a true gospel-centred life. And that he wants to remind Timothy that if he and others spend their time arguing over secondary issues, they will be wasting their time, especially as there's bigger, more heretical issues that need to be challenged. 
He also reminds Timothy that as a gospel worker, that as a teacher and as a preacher, he must be unashamed, that he needs to be approved by God and that he must correctly handle the word of God. And that involves avoiding showing off and trying to impress with pointless words from the pulpit. We've seen the reason for Paul writing to the church, well, to Timothy and the church in Ephesus. It's because it is a real mess. It's facing real spiritual and physical attack and persecution. It faces heresy. It faces false teachers. And it faces a persecution from Rome. Yet even amongst these real dangers, we found the members of the churches bickering among themselves over pointless arguing, over minor theological issues, filling their heads full of knowledge, but keeping their heart void of how they should apply that knowledge to their lives and to one another. Their head is full of theology and their heart is full of worldly desires. And like the church then, the church in the UK today is quite similar. Where you're facing similar issues. On one side, we have people speaking a false gospel and promoting heresy throughout the UK church. And on the other hand, we have a church that is so keen to defend, to defend the truth, it forgets to live it out. This is why Paul is encouraging Timothy Encouraging Timothy then and us as a church today to avoid these pitfalls. Prior to COVID, I was invited to go and speak at a church in America. So before agreeing to do that, I thought I'd check out how I would get there. I researched every flight from every UK airport. I researched every airport that I would land in. I knew every price of every airline, whether it be business class, first class, economy plus. I didn't check out economy. <laughs> I have standards. <laughs> I knew the different planes that would be flying. I knew the in-flight entertainment, the in-flight food, and I even knew the types of lounges upon the airport. I knew what food was served, how much baggage you could take, and which flights gave complimentary gifts and then I contacted the church that invited me to speak and I told them sorry I'm not going to be able to make it and the reason being that despite my intense knowledge of the flights and how to get to America I was petrified of flying and there was no way that I was going to apply that knowledge in my life no way was I going to apply the knowledge of flying to my life no way was I getting on a plane and in a similar way, we can be like that with the word of God. We can fill our heads with the knowledge of God without applying to our lives what we know, without applying to our relationships what we know we should be doing because of the word of God. Instead, we can find ourselves spending hours debating and arguing the great areas of theology whilst never living out the black and white that we know is true. Daily we see time and effort being poured into arguments about baptism, about church membership, about church government and about the woman's role in the church. Often at the expense of us loving our enemies, loving the poor, forgiving others, evangelism, being generous and showing hospitality. 
We might have argued a thousand times about baptism and never opened up our home to someone who needs fellowship with us. We may have argued about women in ministry, but never sat down and prayed with somebody who needs our spiritual support. Paul is telling Timothy directly as a preacher, and he's telling us indirectly that as Christians, if we want to be seen as unashamed workmen and women of Christ, then we also need to avoid sin, whilst also preaching and living out gospel truths. All of us here, whether we are paid church workers or church members, we are all co-workers with Christ, serving on the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. The question is, as Christians and as co-workers, are we approved? Are we unashamed? And are we handling the word of God humbly and correctly? Do we handle the word of God humbly and correctly in our roles as husbands, in our roles as wives, as children, as friends, as church members and as gospel workers? The reason we need to humbly read and apply the word of God is because inevitably there will be conflict in the church and we need to avoid being at the heart of it. The verses go on and say that their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. After Paul describes the qualities of an unashamed workman, he now explains the qualities or the inequalities of a bad workman. He shows that heresy, how lies, how false teaching will be believed by many people. He says that false teaching will be attractive, will be popular and will spread quickly and fast. But although Paul wants Timothy to be aware of the threat of false teachers, Although he wants him to be aware of the consequences of false teaching, he doesn't want him to be unduly concerned. Because he continues to remind Timothy then and us today of God's sovereignty and that his solid foundation, the church, will stand. Paul reminds Timothy that God has chosen his people, that God knows his people and that God will never let his people go. And this is evident by the lives of his people. He is telling Timothy that he will see who are God's peoples, uh, who is God's people by the way that they live, by the way that they are being sanctified through the word and being more like Jesus. He shows that God's people are elect by saying that the Lord knows those who are his, echoing the words of Jesus in John 10, 14, where he says, I am the good shepherd, I know my sheep. And he shows that God's people will be identified by their sanctification when he says everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. The summer before we visited, sorry, the summer before COVID, we visited Nice in the south of France. And Esther noticed that there was a huge police presence 
And she ran up to me and she said, Dad, will we be okay? There's loads of police. And I said, yeah, we're in a big city. France is like that. They always have lots of police around. Then a bit later on, she started to notice that even more police were arriving with automatic rifles. And she said, Dad, they've got machine guns. And I said, don't worry. I said, they love guns over here in France. There's nothing to be worried about. <laughs> then about half an hour later, we saw lots of riot police turning up. And I thought, hang on a minute, something might be going on here. <laughs> she said, Dad, what are those police in army uniforms doing? I said, the riot police, but don't worry. It's better to have lots of police around if something's going to happen than have none. And we found out that the Yellow Vest protesters were in place and I reassured Esther by saying we have nothing to worry. We'd have more to worry about if there was no police than if there was. We know there's a threat, but we know we have the people to protect us. And in a similar way, we, we need to be aware of the threat that comes from false teaching in the church. We need to be aware that Many people will find this teaching attractive and will follow the, the, the lies from those heretical preachers. We also know that we must address it and challenge it. But ultimately, we must be reminded that we have nothing to fear because God is building his church and he will not let his elect be fooled or be taken. You see, what we see through this passage is that inevitably there will be conflict in the church, but we do not need to fear it. He goes on and says that in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So Paul is now using an illustration of a large house. The large house likely represents the church and the two articles made out of gold and silver and the one made out of wood and clay represents preachers and teachers. He says that one is used for holy purposes, for special purposes, and the other is used for common, or in other words, sinful purposes. But he also says if one cleanses himself from the sinful practices, he can then be used for holy purposes, made holy and useful by God to do the work prepared by God. And we can see Timothy is a reflection of the one who has cleansed himself. He's a reflection of the one who has turned from sinful practices to be used for holy practices. And that Hymenus and Philetus are continuing to follow and be used for sinful purposes. We've heard a lot recently, if you're on social media and read Christian press, about conflict in the church. We've heard about conflict that's arisen from sexual misconduct. We've heard about conflict that's arisen from abuse, from financial corruption and from false teaching. All these behaviours are, are painful for the church, but it's rightly called out for what it is, sin. However, every conflict in the church, whether false teaching by leaders or gossiping 
by church members is sinful and needs repenting of. We shouldn't just look at the high profile sins that are causing conflict in the church. We need to look at what we deem to be little sins that each of us commit every Sunday when we're sat in our pews looking or gossiping or tucking at one another. Because if we don't challenge it, if we don't repent of it, we risk losing the status of being called an unashamed workman and we risk losing our usefulness to God. I think it's David Platt when quoting Spurgeon who says, remember the condition for usefulness is not skillfulness, but holiness. Spurgeon said, but let a man once become really holy, even though he has but the slenderest possible ability and he will be a fitter instrument in God's hand than the man of gigantic, gigantic accomplishments who is not obedient to the, the divine will or clean and pure in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. And then he asks, are you fleeing from sin and pursuing Christ? You see, there's an inevitability of conflict within our churches because the church is a place for sinners. And that includes ourselves. Paul goes on and advises Timothy to flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. So now Paul is turning his attention for Timothy to increase his gospel witness and to diminish his likelihood of causing conflict within the church. He tells him to flee the sin that is common for young people and immature believers. The temptation of sexual sin is an obvious one. But as we look at the next verses, we see he's also warning against impatience, arrogance, stubbornness, recklessness, harshness and unkindness. In fact, any habitual and unrepentant sin can railroad our usefulness for God. Paul doesn't just want Timothy to flee from sin. He calls him to also run to Jesus by pursuing righteousness, faith, love and peace in unity with other like-minded believers. Like the image I used this morning of a, of a young boy that inevitably gets cold and wet when he plays in a freezing stream. And how a believer who reflects the mind of Christ is inevitably united with Jesus and his church. A church that is united in its pursuit of righteousness inevitably sees a reduction in conflict amongst one another. You see, we will see our conflict reduced the more we personally pursue righteousness. The more we pursue faith, the, the more we pursue love and the more we pursue peace. And the more we seek to be united with others who are doing likewise. Because there will inevitably be a conflict in the church and the remedy is pursuing Jesus. Paul finishes this section by saying, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil 
who's taken them captive to do his will. Paul now focuses on how Timothy can focus on those who are causing the conflict, how he can focus on those who are, who are sinning and those who are full of foolish talk, those who are spreading heresy. He doesn't tell Timothy to go and fill them in or chase them or kick them out. He tells Timothy to gently teach them. He doesn't say don't challenge them. He doesn't say pacify them. He doesn't say beat about the bush with them. He tells them to gently teach them. Gentleness is a power that is controlled. Like God the Father who in one breath can annihilate and destroy his enemies and in the next can gently caress his children to his chest. Timothy is to use the, the power of the gospel to gently teach, convict and bring his opponents to repentance. Paul is hoping that if those causing trouble are true believers, that the gentle preaching of Timothy, the gentle preaching of the gospel and the, the power of the Holy Spirit will soften their hearts and minds, the hearts and minds of those causing conflict and bring them to their senses. Yet also, Paul reminds Timothy that those who cause conflict in our churches are not the real enemy. And that it is the devil who is the real enemy and is the instigator of all conflict. He reminds Timothy that it is the devil who has entrapped these opponents. It is the devil who is attacking the church. And it is the devil who is holding captive these sinners in order for them to be his puppets, to manipulate them and to control them in doing his will. Many of you know that we have a big Staffordshire Bull Terrier. He's 30 kilos of solid muscle and bone. And many of our visitors to our home are intimidated by him because the media and the general opinion of the public think that these types of dogs are devil dogs and ferocious. Yet if you spend any time with him, you realise that he's a big, soft baby. He loves a cuddle, he loves to sit on your knee, and he loves a tickle. If he hears a big bang or a motorbike or a helicopter, he runs and hides behind my legs. However soft that Ollie is, these type of dogs have been involved in dog attacks. Yet these attacks have primarily been caused by dogs whose owners have bred them specifically to be vicious and to be aggressive. They use them to intimidate rival drug dealers. They use them to hurt their enemies and they use them for illegal dog fighting. These dogs are not naturally aggressive and the ones that are are often trained and abused to make them that way. Unable to escape from their owners, many of these are Dogs are manipulated and rewarded every time they display aggression and attack people. In a similar way, when we as Christians flirt and indulge with sin, we fall into the devil's trap. When we seek his rewards from his temporary, substandard, counterfeit pleasures, we end up being enslaved to him once again. 
And it's only when the believer is convicted by the word and the spirit that they're eventually brought to their senses and repent. We need to ask ourselves that when we face conflict within the church, who do we see as the enemy? Your brother and sister in Christ or the devil? We need to ask ourselves, how do we respond to conflict? Through gentle instruction with the gospel or with an angry attack? And when we flirt with sin, do we realise that the devil isn't just trying to take us out? He wants to take as many of those that we fellowship out with as well. You see, encountering the conflict in the church can be discouraging. Many of us can feel that we have more conflict in the church at times than we do in the world. And because of that, this is why we need to look at God's word, in particular this passage, and remember that all of us will inevitably face conflict in the church. And sometimes it'll be us at the heart of it. When we need, when we find that we need to repent and we need to apply the word of God to our lives and avoid it happening again. We also need to be aware of conflict and challenge it. But we don't need to fear it because God is building and will protect his church. We also need to expect sin in our churches and we need to show grace to sinners because the church is a place for sinners, including ourselves. But despite all of this conflict, we can give thanks. We can give thanks to God that he has given us a remedy for conflict, and that is pursuing Jesus and pointing him to our opponents, because they aren't our enemies, the devil is. So we need to pray that our brothers and sisters who are in error who are trapped in sin and are causing conflict come to our senses through hearing the gentle gospel, that same gentle gospel that brought us to our senses the day that we first believed. Do you remember that day when you understood that you were a sinner, when you understood that you were an enemy of God? Yet despite that, God the Father still sent his son Jesus the God-man, fully God, yet fully man. Sent to experience our pain. Sent to experience our temptation, yet still not sinning. Jesus, who lived a perfect life so he could die as a, a perfect sacrifice in our place. Suffering torture, suffering ridicule, suffering conflict from those who he came to save. Yet as he was Facing the conflict of sinners, he still cried out as he was dying on the cross to his father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Rising three days later, defeating death and sin, ascending to heaven until that perfect time for his perfect return. When he comes, those who are in constant conflict with him, those who have rejected him to punish them, for eternity in hell and to rescue his church. Those of us who have come to our senses, those of us who have accepted him as Lord and Saviour, once trapped by the devil, once used by the devil to fulfil his will and now chosen, forgiven and adopted after coming to our senses. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat>